Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today, by listener request, we are kicking off a two-part Summer Book Club 2012 series. And we're talking about saucy books. Saucy books. Saucy books. We've discussed romance novels before, the genre, unfortunately termed chiclet before. Um, And I would say that for women's literature, popular fiction this summer, the the title that everybody's talking about is, we got to say it, Caroline, it's Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. And as I was just telling Kristen, I didn't even really know what this book was until about a month ago. Yeah. And there was a specific request also uh, for our summer book club series to not be about <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. So don't worry. We're not about to talk about, uh, you know, what some might not really appreciate in terms of erotic fiction that is Fifty Shades of Grey. But all this Fifty Shades of Grey buzz got us thinking about books that are hard to get your hands on, and specifically book banning in the U.S. Because I think today in the information age with the Internet, you know, we can, it seems like we can read whatever we want. Mm -hmm. But that was certainly not the case uh, for a long time here in the U.S. and going back in history to as far back as, oh, I don't know, 450 B.C. What happened in 450 B.C.? <laughs> well, Caroline, uh, <laughs> a guy named uh, Anaxagoras. Anaxagoras, thank you. Okay, we'll just run with that. <laughs> a guy with a not easily to roll off the tongue name Anaxagoras. Mm-hmm. He wrote some stuff, and people did not like it. Yeah, he was a Greek philosopher who ended up getting forced out of Athens and had his writings burned after claiming that this crazy notion that the sun was actually a white hot stone and the moon reflected the sun's rays. So everybody was like, get out, out of town, we hate you, you're stupid. Um, and then in 399 B.C., Socrates was required to drink poison for supposedly corrupting youth leading them to criticize Athens. Again, what's going on with you Greeks? But I mean, seriously, like as long as there have been ideas or thoughts happening, mm-hmm. there's been some form of censorship. Yeah. And people, humans, human animals seem to really enjoy just having things on paper, other people's ideas on paper that they can then rip up or ban. Um, Ola Naxagoras got got so much guff because he they thought that he was being derogatory to the gods. Yeah. And that kind of theme of uh offending people's religious sensibilities is certainly something that we still see with book banning today. And it was something when we go look at the history of book banning in the US, Christianity does play a pretty big role, starting in 1873 with U.S. Post Service inspector and politician Anthony Comstock, who was a devout Christian and founder of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Right. And this whole society's goal was to prevent obscene materials from polluting 
the minds of the American people. And he really targeted erotica and crime stories, which I think is funny. So it's not just sexy times that he doesn't want people to read about. It's crime, too. And he considered dime novels to be pornography for children. Yeah, and... This kind of puritanical uh, intrusion on literature and printing was it seemed like it was pretty widely accepted at the time because Congress did pass the Comstock Acts, which were an anti-obscenity bill that Comstock had drafted, which included a ban on contraceptives and also barred obscene literature from interstate commerce. And this kind of puritanical intrusion on literature and what people were and weren't allowed to read legally was, I mean, I guess fairly widespread at the time because U.S. Congress did pass the Comstock Act, which was an anti-obscenity bill that Anthony Comstock had drafted, which included a ban on contraceptives and also barred obscene literature from interstate commerce. And by obscene literature, we are also talking about things like Margaret Sanger's early pamphlets on contraception. Oh, Oh, my. Oh, my. I mean, even even that, like kind of biological reproductive information was considered, you know, banned. Yeah, it's so funny. Everybody got their panties in a twist about just learning about women's bodies, Mm -hmm. just learning about contraception, family planning, anything like any any sexy anything. Yeah. Was just too much. And all because it had to do with women's bodies. They were like, nope, nope, can't read it. It's going to pollute everybody's minds. We're all going to be filthy afterward. And something that I didn't know was that Boston was really the hotbed of literary suppression. Bostonians out there, you guys, I mean, claim to fame. Uh, one, (laughs) books were so often banned in Boston that, uh, in the 1950s, uh, salacious titles would be labeled banned in Boston to help move them off the shelves. Because people would be like, ooh, it must be bad if it was banned in Boston. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, you guys had the tea party. You know, you threw tea bags in the water and stuff, and now here you are banning books. I don't get it. But the efforts in Boston were really led by the Watch and Ward Society, who kind of like Comstock's New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Yeah, um, this was coming from the Boston Globe, just to give you a sense of how much the Watch and Ward Society cracked down, and also how much people, like, I mean, they jumped when the Watch and Ward Society cracked its whip. For instance, in its heyday, the Boston Public Library kept books, which the Watch and Ward Society found objectionable, in a locked room. The Museum of Fine Arts kept parts of its Asian collection behind doors. And again, the, you know, the label banned in Boston became uh, a selling point for smutty literature. Yeah, well, they weren't the only ones. Uh, the 1950s were definitely, definitely a stretch of time that was big on book banning. Yeah. For sure. Uh, and in, uh, 1953, for instance, Senator Joseph McCarthy, whose name should be very familiar, had his aides search U.S. Information Service libraries in Europe and Asia for subversive books, and libraries were accused of circulating communist materials. Yeah, all the McCarthyism that was sweeping the nation at the time seemed to kind of replace banning books on the basis of immorality to banning books on the basis of, you know, subversive communist undertones. Right, just making everybody scared. Yeah, and burning books. Books and such. But then, thank goodness, in 1982, the Supreme Court stepped in with the case Board of Education Island Tree School District versus Pico with a little bit of, uh, a little bit of 
sensibility about this whole book banning issue. Yeah, they ruled that public school boards could not remove a book from the library, quote, simply because they dislike the ideas contained in those books. Basically saying that there needs to be a balance between school's role as an educator and students' right of access to the material. So a book has to be pervasively vulgar to be banned. Yeah, and um, this case sprang out of a 1976 issue where a bunch of parents and school staff ordered that uh, certain books be removed from a junior high and high school library. And to give you an idea of some of the the books that they wanted to ban, Slaughterhouse-Five by Mm -hmm. Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Go Ask Alice, which is a commonly banned book, um, A Reader for Writers, edited by Jerome Walter Archer, uh, The Naked Ape, The Best Short Stories by Negro Writers, edited by Langston Hughes, uh, a lot of other um, race-related titles as well. And they claimed that the books were anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and just plain filthy. And thankfully, the Supreme Court stepped in and said, yeah, no. Yeah, and there was another case in 1989, Texas v. Johnson, where uh, Supreme Court Justice William J. Brennan Jr. said that if there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. So we have people like this saying things like this, which are wonderful and Mm -hmm. supportive of knowledge and access to knowledge. But (laughs) book banning... Efforts to ban books are not going away, basically. No. And the thing is, even though we have Supreme Court justices like William J. Brenner, who have in the past supported uh, First Amendment rights and the freedom of expression, that is not to say that obscene literature is legally protected in the U.S. So a case that Kristen and I actually learned about in our journalism days at college. Yeah, in our in our legal ethics course. Exactly. We had a very dynamic professor. I really like that class. Um, uh, this case is called Miller v. California, and it basically established a three-point test for obscenity. Uh, and those points are, one, the text must appeal to prurient interests when taken as a whole. It must involve patently offensive sexual conduct, and it must contain no literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. And these are points that have come up again and again in in various cases because there is a desire to protect literature that is actually out there to inform and to educate. It, it, this will prevent people from just willy-nilly being like, well, that's against my religious beliefs or my moral beliefs, and I don't want anybody else to read it. Yeah, and in the, in the past, the way that the law approached obscenity was more narrowly focused on whether or not there was a particular uh, obscene scene in mm-hmm. the book. Um, for instance, in Ulysses, which we'll get to, it all sprang out of uh, one episode where the protagonist masturbates Mm -hmm. rather than the entire work. And the law used to focus just on how it might affect vulnerable populations, particularly minors. So in 1933, in the wonderfully named case, United States versus one book called Ulysses, as opposed to uh, what? I don't know. (laughs) Um, The judge ruled that Ulysses was not obscene, and he didn't use the Hicklin test as it had been recognized prior, which was just focusing on the vulnerable population and how obscenity affected them. The judge ended up saying that it should be judged by its effects on the average person. 
Right, because all of this, that was in 1933, as you mentioned, and up until that time, the sale of Ulysses in the U.S. or mailing it through the mail... That's that's really descriptive, right? That's right. <laughs> email it through the mail. Um, had been banned uh, since 1922 because of the masturbation scene that a younger girl had read, freaked out, her parents freaked out, and then, you know, we have a, a legal case spring up from that. And the 1933 case, U.S. v. one book called Ulysses, uh, was a test case brought on by Random House, actually, that wanted to publish Ulysses, so they were testing the waters with that. And, like you said, the judge ruled that, hey, it's not obscene. Let's move on from there. Uh, but some other controversial publishers and writers who have rankled conservatives throughout the 20th century, um, going back a little bit before that Ulysses case, we have H.L. Mencken, uh, a.k.a. the Sage of Baltimore, who seemed to love just making conservatives really mad with his writing. Right. He was actually arrested in 1926 in Boston for distributing copies of American Mercury, which was a a publication that he put out. Um, The publication had been banned by, as we mentioned earlier, the Watch and Ward Society, who contended that the periodical was obscene. And the judge disagreed with them. Minkin turned around and ended up suing the society. He was basically kind of lawsuit happy because he thought, here I am, I'm going to prove that this stuff is not bad for the public, that society is not being affected for the worse, and I just want my voice heard. Yeah, and he used a satirical style that allowed him to poke fun at the thoughts, words, actions of the U.S. and its more conservative citizens. And he Mm -hmm. often spoke out directly against religious fundamentalists And fun fact, H.L. Mencken first used the term Bible Belt. Right. He also coined the term monkey trial for the Scopes trial. Mm -hmm. So moving on from Mencken, one guy um, who (laughs) we can thank for some of our smuttiest books in our home libraries. (laughs) <laughs> Barney Rossett, who um, founded the publishing company Grove Press, and essentially the aim of Grove Press was to breach the dam of American Puritanism, as he called it. He brought a bunch of writers to Americans' attention, including Samuel Beckett. He published Che Guevara. Um, and in the 1960s, he published D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover, which originally appeared in Italy in 1928, and Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, which was a very controversial, sexually explicit, autobiographical novel that had been published in Paris in 1934 and banned since then in the U.S. Yeah, and i got to say that Tropic of Cancer is, in fact, so sexually explicit, it is almost, I find, difficult to read. Really? Yes. There is just so much penis. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, but Lady Chatterley's Lover uh, was a really important book because the case started out, the obscenity case started out in England in 1960 with the case of Crown v. Penguin Books, and essentially Penguin won, and they were allowed to sell the books. But in the U.S., you still couldn't get your hands on the copy until Barney Rossett fought the legal battle in the United States, and Lady Chatterley's Lover got into our hands here. And there's a great scene in, I believe it's the first season of Mad Men, when they pan to the secretary's break room or something, and they're all passing around a copy of the unabridged version (laughs) of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which, because initially the publishers said, hey, if you cut out all of the the dirty stuff, then we can publish it. And uh, D.H. Lawrence was like, no, 
No, my woodsman sex scenes will remain. And he did a little Z-snap formation with his fingers. But actually, uh, Ross had had to fight several battles over Lady Chatterley's lover. Um, Because, like the earlier book we mentioned, the main distribution method was through the mail. Yeah. The Postmaster General actually barred the book from the mail. But a federal judge ended up overturning the ban, ruling that the book had redeeming merit. And that is the key. Does the piece of literature have redeeming merit? Yeah. And Tropic of Cancer, as anyone who has read it can imagine, uh, was a whole lot of trouble for Barney Rossett. Um, he faced more than 60 legal cases seeking to ban it in 21 states and even led to Rossett's arrest, although the grand jury decided against an indictment. But it was it, it's interesting to hear um, or read interviews with Rossett because he was so just persistent and really didn't care whether what it took mm-hmm. to bring um, racier titles to the U.S. Exactly. Well, some of these people who are out to ban books for whatever reason, you can't just get a book banned willy-nilly out of the gate right away. You have to actually raise a challenge. And so that's an attempt to remove or restrict materials based on the objections of a person or group. Most challenges are unsuccessful, and libraries and schools are typically able to retain the challenge materials. Um, but between 1990 and 2000, according to the American Library Association, there were 6,364 challenges raised against books. And that number for 10 years, I feel like that's pretty high. I feel yeah. like that's a lot of challenged books. Well, especially when you consider it in the contemporary context of all of the more sexually explicit or racy stuff, racy stuff that we see on television, on the Internet. Yeah. You know, the fact that we're still so concerned about books, I find. I mean, do kids even go to libraries anymore? I hope so. I hope so, too. But I'm just saying, like, right. is really these books are the thing that you're worried about the most? Like, shouldn't you maybe take the Internet away first? But um, the two top challenged uh, topics, basically, are sexually explicit material and offensive language, followed by things with occult themes, violence, anything that seems to be perceived to promote homosexuality, as well as religious viewpoints. Yeah, and speaking of occult themes, between 2000 and 2009, the Harry Potter series Mm, mm -hmm. is the number one most banned books in the United States because of the, the wizardry. It's teaching our children to be wizards. It it makes people very upset. My uh, my French professor in college went on a rant about how you know you see these people wearing black around campus. They're not they're not goth. They're witches, and they are doing voodoo, and they are evil because of Harry Potter. Yeah, because one of my classmates had given a presentation in French on Harry Potter. So well, with the offensive language stuff as well, there are still issues over Huckleberry Finn because he refers to Jim as. The N word. Right. It's like, well, what do we do? What do we do with that? Because that was, you know, writing in the time. How does it apply now? And again, if you apply that Miller test and look at the body, the entire body of the work and whether or not it has literary merit, usually things shake out in favor of the book. Right. Well, there there are people. Don't worry. There are people supporting books out there. Uh, there's this whole banned books week, which I believe this year is in September, end of September. Yes, it is from September 30th to October 6th. So that gives listeners plenty of time to get a lot of uh, a lot of books to read openly. 
Yeah. And not burn. And not burn them. Well, yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's not only to kind of feature the banned books to get more people to read them, but it also, the whole point of it is to celebrate the freedom to read and the importance of the First Amendment. Yeah, because we've talked a lot about uh, racier literature, but a lot of common books that have been banned over the years include titles like The Great Gatsby, Catcher in the Rye, Grapes of Wrath, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Color Purple, all of which deal with difficult themes but I couldn't imagine not having them to read and, you know, all of the 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 rich imagery that they bestow upon us. Well, exactly. I mean, except for The Grapes of Wrath. I don't know what happened to me, why I didn't read that in high school. But I read, so good. I read these other ones in, uh, I guess, in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So next up in our Summer Book Club two-parter, we are going to dive deeper into racier material and talk specifically about... Erotica, warning to those who have younger listeners in tow. But in the meantime, we want to hear from listeners. Um, curious to know if your library has ever tried to ban books. Um, have you ever challenged a book? Have you read banned books? I don't know. What do you, what do you think about censorship and all of that? International listeners, what are, what are the state of book banning and censorship in your countries as well. Let us know. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send all of your letters that we love to read. And speaking of which, we have two letters here, both about Manic Pixie Dream Guys. So Brandon wrote in with a couple of suggestions about Manic Pixie Dream Guys. And he says, there are two candidates that I can guess. The sort of Prince Charming archetype that pops up sometimes in movies to be the object of affection and is all glamour and gentlemanliness and just so perfect, who usually sort of convinces the heroine that there's more to love than all that. He's almost never given any real sort of dimension and is defined only by his interactions with the female main character and sometimes by her friends. He may not have pixie dust, but his smile is usually slightly blinding because of how white his teeth are. The other option maybe fits less well. He is the male character who is in the perfect on paper life the female protagonist has at the beginning of a movie, but ends up being kind of meh. Sometimes he's an outright jerk. Other times he's just dull. He pops up in those kind of movies. Reese Witherspoon stars in a lot where she's dating him or engaged to him or something and then goes off on some kind of adventure and ends up leaving him triumphantly at the end of the movie. True, it's often for a true love interest of some kind, but occasionally we also see this happen when she decides she doesn't need to define herself by the man she's with. So two excellent candidates. Thank you, Brandon. Okay, this one's from Amber. She says that she loved the Manic Pixie Dream Girl episode and that it raised such paradoxical views that we in the U.S. have about women. However, when you asked about male equivalents to this female caricature, my brain instantly jumped to Matthew McConaughey. If Zoe Deschanel is the girl's girl, he is the guy's guy. With the exception of a few dramatic roles, Time to Kill, Cadillac Lawyer, and Amistad, he has played roles that portray very happy male qualities. Travel to exotic places, expensive cars, great figure. I agree. Power, freedom, and he always gets the girl. Another celebrity that fits would be Christopher Pine for the same reasons. I do wonder why the social discourse has not addressed the male counterparts, but has only focused on the female pixies. Hopefully the uproar over this will die down and we can just enjoy people for who they are. I guess my response to this would be, I don't know if there is a 
total 100% male equivalent to a manic pixie dream girl? I think that a lot of, I was thinking about this, a lot of Jason Siegel's characters mm-hmm. like in I Love You Man. Yeah. Manic pixie dream guy because he's the catalyst, for instance, for Paul Rudd's transformation. And while it may not be romantic, and he kind of goes through his own transformation as mm-hmm. well. I don't know. He tends to kind of play sort of hippie drippy dudes. Yeah. And I love him. Yeah. If, in case you're listening, Jason Siegel. That's true. So, if you are Jason Siegel and would like to get in touch with me, or if you have any any thoughts you'd like to share, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. And you can also find us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And if you would like to learn more about the history of banning books and how people go about getting those books off of library shelves, you can read the article, How Are Books Banned? by Kristen Conger at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you